All right, everybody. It is Monday, December 5th. I'm Mosh Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place that we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news, or at least we try to, and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how was your weekend? My weekend was good. I imagine it was similar to other parents of young kids, which means shuttling the kids to birthday parties and sports and then forcing ourselves to go out on Saturday nights. We feel somewhat normal. Oh, I'm glad you took some time to yourself. That's important. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see what you have to look forward to, Mosh? I I know. But you guys are all trying to pull us into the club very quickly. Like, have the kids. You want to have the kids. Not that this is Jill's advice column, but enjoy being married without kids for a while. I don't think that there's any rush. My husband and I had kids pretty quickly just because we got married a little bit later in life. So we, and we thought it was going to take a long time and it, it didn't. And so... I I don't know. I would enjoy, I think there's something really special about being married in that beginning stage without kids. Yeah, we're just a little over a year of being married and we're trying to enjoy that stage of our life. And when we're ready for the next phase, we will will get there um, despite all the peer pressure. All right, Mosh, but let's get to some of today's headlines. What we learned from these so-called Twitter files released over the weekend, the latest on the record flu season and what's behind it, what the Chinese and Iranian governments each claim that they're going to be doing after protests in both countries, the investigation into a massive power outage in North Carolina that some are calling a terrorist attack, and a Washington Post story has sparked a big debate about taking your phone into the bathroom and just how long some of us are spending there. Yeah, there was no shortage of opinions about this over the weekend. (laughs) I'm looking forward to discussing at the end of this podcast. All right, so let's start with what Elon Musk had promised would be a bombshell revelation over the weekend. What he dubbed the Twitter files were released via one journalist, Rolling Stone reporter Matt Taibbi. Taibbi broke down what he got via tweet, of course, on Friday evening in about three dozen Twitter posts. The documents are mostly internal Twitter emails, and they depict this chaotic situation that led Twitter to censor a New York Post story about the son of then-Democratic candidate Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, back in October of 2020. That month, the New York Post published a story that cited materials obtained from a laptop that the younger Biden left at a repair shop. With the election weeks away and 2016's hacked DNC emails and other Russian election meddling fresh in mind, Twitter decided to limit that story's reach and block it and related tweets for a couple of weeks in October of 2020. They eventually lifted the restrictions prior to the election. According to these new documents, one member of Twitter's legal team wrote that it was reasonable for Twitter to assume that the documents came from a hack, adding that caution is warranted. He wrote, we simply need more information. A lot of people who have covered this have said these revelations were sort of a dud. They had had higher expectations. Some conservatives, though, including former President Trump, celebrated over the weekend, saying this proves that Twitter was putting their finger on the scales for Democrats. Trump even posting this weekend that it proves that he should immediately be made president through a redo election and that the country should should consider terminating parts of the Constitution to make it happen. Uh, Let's get to that in a second. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's take this bit by bit. That was like a a wild sidebar. Uh, What did you make of the reveal of Matt Taibbi's posts? Yeah, so let's just remind folks, because, you know, it's been more than two years since the election at this point, Jill. So the headline we knew at the time and that we learned thereafter, and this is admission from Twitter officials in the weeks following all of that, was that Twitter overreacted that at the time, everyone was trying to learn the lessons of 2016. 
And of course, in 2016, the evidence was that the Russians used social media, used platforms like Twitter and Facebook to put forth disinformation to try to uh, mess with the American election. So in 2020, uh, everyone was on high alert, including Twitter and Facebook, about that happening all over again. So they see this New York Post story, and there are Democrats, including people in the Biden campaign, saying, listen, this is Russian disinformation. So uh, the folks internally at Twitter make this decision to block the New York Post story specifically. Uh, within days, you already had Twitter officials in mid-October, so this is a couple of weeks before the election, saying, ooh, we might have gone too far, uh, and they eventually uh, lift that ban on the link. So Elon, since he took over last month, fast forward two years, Elon's taken over Twitter. He's been making a huge deal out of this. He's taking over the company. He's trying to clean it up. And so in this case, he's literally leaking internal documents from the company that he bought to embarrass the previous leadership team and also, uh, no surprise, get some traffic onto Twitter. So what he does here is instead of just releasing the Twitter documents to everybody, he picks a reporter, Matt Taibbi, uh, who's written some friendly things about him uh, and apparently put some preconditions on it, though Taibbi won't say exactly all the preconditions. But among them, clearly, is to tweet out the revelation. So he does this on Friday. But Elon's been building this up for a while, Jill, saying like, this is going to be big. This is going to be huge. What we got, and it's about 40 tweets, and I linked to it on Instagram, and I'm happy to include a link here on the show notes so you can go through them, is you effectively see some internal conversations and emails within Twitter saying, ooh, should we block it? Should we not block it? Okay, let's block it. We're worried that this, this information from the New York Post story about Hunter Biden. And this is Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine while his father, Joe, was vice president during the Obama years. And we can do a whole separate conversation and podcast about all of that. But effectively, we know now that Hunter Biden had no business getting some of these consulting deals that he got. Clearly, there were companies trying to work Hunter Biden for access to his father. So it turns out the New York Post story was legitimate, but the Biden campaign at the time was calling it disinformation. That actually turns out to be inaccurate. The story was legit. So far, though, we should note there was no criminality on the part of Joe Biden there. There have been multiple investigations, but there were terrible optics. And again, there's a whole separate conversation to be had about Hunter Biden. The question at hand here was, should Twitter have blocked the story? And the answer, even from the Twitter folks two years ago, days after they did it, was probably no. It was a mistake. Other media have since confirmed the story. It was legit. But you can see in what effectively we learn through the revelations is that all the politics and campaigning that was going on with both sides trying to lobby Twitter back and forth. Uh, there's no indication of any law enforcement involvement like the FBI. There's no documents here showing the FBI was telling Twitter to block this. Taibbi, to his credit, does note that both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign were both making requests of Twitter at the time to take links down. Uh, and he basically makes the assertion because people tended to be more liberal at Twitter, that they were probably more friendly to the Democrats. But again, there was no evidence shown of this. So everyone's kind of looking at this being like, okay, we sort of knew most of this. It doesn't look great. Uh, it certainly got some traffic to Twitter over the weekend. But by the way, Elon and Taibbi are promising more documents over the course of the next couple of days. Uh, and also Barry Weiss, another journalist, apparently has gotten access to some documents there. Okay, so there has been a ton of reaction. And just getting back to former President Trump's reaction, he's been posting a ton over the weekend on True Social, his social media platform. And he took things to a new level, even for him. He wrote that, quote, the unprecedented fraud requires unprecedented cure. 
in all caps. And then this post from Saturday where he wrote, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. He said he wants to be installed as president or an option to redo the 2020 election. Many people are focused on that line, termination of all rules, even those found in the Constitution. Yeah, so this is a new line even for Trump. Uh, The Twitter story, generally a positive one for him. Like, let's just put it out there, right? It reinforces that a tech platform went a bit too far in censoring a story two years ago that was negative for Biden. But then Trump, like he sometimes does, takes things to the next level, as opposed to saying, you know, what the story did. He says that I believe that this calls for the termination of rules, even those found in the Constitution. A reminder here that a president takes an oath to preserve and protect the Constitution, never makes a call to terminate the Constitution. They don't have that sort of authority. And it sort of reinforces what we saw on January 6th, et cetera, that being in office for former President Trump is more important than preserving the laws. So we went through another cycle over the weekend, as we all expected, where Republicans in office are then asked about former President Trump and what he has to say or what he's up to. Last week, it was the dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye and uh, Fuentes. This weekend, it was that tweet about the Constitution. Here are a few of the responses. So you had one Republican congressman, David Joyce from Ohio, who was pushed on it. He said that Trump has no ability to suspend the Constitution. He says a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that it's ever going to happen. Another Republican congressman, Michael Turner of Ohio, said he absolutely condemned Trump's remarks. Another congressman-elect, this is uh, Mike Lawler from New York, echoed several other Republicans who said that, quote, I think Trump would be well advised to focus on the future if he's ever going to run for president again. One Republican operative close to former President Trump told The Washington Post that uh, his post on Truth Social didn't literally advocate or call for terminating the Constitution. Uh, He was speaking hypothetically. If you read that uh, Truth Social post, it's hard to see how he's speaking hypothetically. He's clearly calling for some sort of aspect of terminating the Constitution here. Either way, it's the latest annoying thing uh, many sitting Republicans have to be asked about in regards to the former president. And people are asking me, you know, sometimes on Instagram, Jill, why we keep covering these types of things in his posts. And I will remind everyone, officially, the former president is the leading Republican candidate for president for 2024 right now, if you look at the polls. And it just frankly isn't something normal for a former president to say uh, we would cover it the same way if Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush or Jimmy Carter called for terminating parts of the Constitution. The other thing that I want to mention is that your First Amendment rights, to be clear, aren't protected by social media. They are private companies and they can technically censor whatever they want. And it might not make good business sense to do it. And in this case, Elon Musk says he's releasing this trove of documents from Matt Taibbi because he wants to restore the public trust in Twitter. But they could technically, again, within their legal rights, they could do whatever they want. You could They could ban whomever they want. You know, there's no First Amendment right. And I don't even know if this is what Trump was saying, but you, you're not entitled to free speech on social media. You're completely right, Jill. I mean, ultimately, if people don't like what's happening on Facebook, on TikTok, on Twitter, they can go to competitors, right? In Trump's case, he was banned from Twitter and literally created a copycat platform, Truth Social, so he could put out whatever he wants. Uh, And if you are a user of any of these platforms, you don't like what they're doing or they're blocking what you're saying, you can go to other places. And so that's what's happening here. Uh, And I think people tend to get confused about First Amendment rights. The the First Amendment is protected by the government, but ultimately, if you're a private company, 
you have your own policies, and that's the way the free market works. But one of the reasons there's a lot of sensitivity, Jill, is just the influence that these companies have. And I guess that's that's the feeling people had here, is that the influence uh, that Twitter and Facebook had on the election, uh, that they have undue influence. So people tend to scrutinize their policies. Look, when you saw the back and forth about Kayleigh McEnany, the former press secretary for President Trump, where she all she had done was basically share a post about that New York Post article um, and she was blocked or banned. Right. This is in the October, like sort of Twitter scandal weeks. Yeah. I mean, certainly it, it makes you scratch your head and it was an overreaction. Again, was it illegal? No. I mean, they could do what they want. It's just not a good look. Right. The Federal Election Commission actually looked into this in 2021 and found that no illegal actions took place uh, on the part of social media companies. Uh, they've since apologized. They've revised their policies. Uh, but they're all sort of constantly learning the lessons from the last election, Jill. Uh, And, you know, we're heading into another election cycle here. So I'll be very curious to see how Elon manages Twitter these days and what Zuckerberg has learned over on Facebook going into the next time. All right, Moshe, let's move on to our next story. Now to some of the concerning flu numbers that we got on Friday. The headline is that the U.S. flu season just keeps getting worse and earlier than normal. The CDC estimates that there have been at least 78,000 hospitalizations and 4,500 deaths from flu so far this year. And the deaths include at least 14 children. U.S. health officials said Friday that flu-related medical visits last week were the highest in five years. The annual winter flu season usually doesn't even get going until December or January. This one began early, and it has been complicated by the simultaneous spread of other viruses. Meanwhile, 44 states reported high or very high flu activity last week, according to the CDC. People recently gathered for Thanksgiving. There was a lot more holiday travel and more holiday travels on the way. And that means there is a lot of potential for this to spread even further in the future. Yeah, they're calling the triple-demic, Jill, COVID uh, back with the kind of new subvariants, RSV, and then flu. Specifically, when we're talking about flu, nearly 20,000 Americans were hospitalized with the flu during Thanksgiving week alone. That's the most for that week in more than a decade, almost double the previous week's count. The government also tracks doctor's visits related specifically to the flu, outpatient visits for the flu. Uh, And I will link to a map in the show notes, but it includes a number of states that are at the highest uh, that they've seen in a while on high alert, basically, for the flu visits. Texas, Kentucky, California, Colorado, Tennessee, Ohio, Virginia, Nebraska, and New Mexico. And then it doesn't include all of New York State, but New York City is the uh, is the reddest of the red when it comes to flu visits right now. One reason doctors think flu might be more widespread this year is due to COVID itself, with people taking preventive measures during the pandemic in previous years. Fewer people were exposed to the flu. Uh, this year, obviously, less people with masks. People are out and about. Uh, and things have gotten basically back to normal, which means the flu is back to uh, normal and beyond. Uh, They're also saying that fewer people were vaccinated for the flu this year. As of mid-November, an estimated 4.5 million fewer American adults received the flu shot at pharmacies or physicians' offices in 2022 compared to 2021. Doctors think it's likely a combination of increased hesitancy around vaccines, as well as a fatigue just overall stemming from COVID. All right. With that, Jill, there's sort of a natural transition here. I know we have a lot of news to get to, but I want to thank this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. There's a great deal for Mo News listeners that I want to tell you about. The Athletic Greens AG1 all-in-one vitamin is a must as we now try to get through this flu season. Trying to get all your vitamins in, as many of you know, can be tough. 
Uh, and if you're trying to take them individually, they can be tough to keep track of, can get pricey. You know, I was uh, taking a few for a while, a couple with breakfast, with lunch, with dinner. Uh, and what I have loved since I've gotten started here with Athletic Greens AG1 powder for a couple months now is it's literally just one scoop of the AG1 powder with a glass of water in the morning. The experience is simple, affordable, and I'm feeling an extra boost of energy, uh, especially when I used to lag midday. The AG1 powder contains over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. Uh, it also has pre and probiotics to support your gut health. And here is the best news. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just one month. Again, it's athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal, uh, and it really will help you start to take ownership of your health. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash, and the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. All right, now onto the speed read. This first story is a follow-up of our conversation on Friday, and it comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. Local authorities across China started paring back some of their strictest COVID-19 control measures over the weekend. In recent days, officials in major cities, including Beijing and other areas where protests broke out a week ago, said that they were finally lifting some curbs on residents' movements. So they're ending mandatory COVID testing for people who want to use public transportation or enter parks. And it comes just days after public anger spilled over into rare protests. Some even got violent against the zero tolerance approach. And also leader Xi Jinping, the policy has kept the country and its 1.4 billion residents largely isolated for more than three years. So this is, we're going to watch this very closely, Jill, to see how far the Chinese go. Um, over the past week, they've sort of taken this dual approach in China, where they've been trying to stop the unrest with a extra large police presence, even by Chinese standards in major cities. They were using digital surveillance to track down protesters. Uh, you might have seen the videos of them literally going on the subways, going through people's phones one by one on the subway, looking for banned apps like Instagram and VPN apps, etc. At the same time, though, the Chinese government notably makes this call here to pretty much start to give in 
ever so slightly on zero COVID. They're, uh, you know, extreme strategy here. Uh, and they're putting a fresh spin on it, though. They're saying, well, you know, listen, the uh, efforts to combat the virus have been victorious and we've entered a new phase. So that's the spin. They want to declare victory and move on as opposed to acknowledging that zero COVID didn't work. Some analysts, though, I was uh, reading some of the coverage in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, uh, say that easing these initial measures don't yet amount to an abandonment of the zero COVID policy. One analyst at Goldman Sachs say that we see clear evidence of the Chinese government preparing for an exit. So they're preparing to get out as opposed to actually getting out. Staying with international protests here, we have some headlines out of Iran this weekend. The Washington Post reports that Iran's so-called morality police unit, whose actions sparked months of protests, has been suspended. That is according to a top Iranian official who spoke to state media Sunday. Although the status of the force remains uncertain, the disbandment of the morality force that's responsible for enforcing those mandatory hijabs, even if nominal, would indicate a level of reaction to the demands of the demonstrators that we have never seen. Experts are warning, though, that the remarks by the top official, the Iranian attorney general, should be taken with a dose of skepticism. Activists say it's just the regime trying to create a divide within the protest movement and that nothing is certain. Now, a reminder, these protests took off three months ago after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She was in the custody of the so-called morality police. They detained her and then allegedly beat her to death over an alleged violation of the country's conservative dress code for women. So that is what sparked the protest. But they have since escalated to calls for the overthrow of the entire regime. Jill, we're nearly 100 days in here. More than 400 uh, Iranians have been killed, more than 15,000 arrested. And by the way, given heavy censorship and limitations on reporting, we still don't know the exact numbers. Those are the um, sort of numbers we've gotten from human rights workers and folks who've been observing things there. But it was notable when this headline crossed on Sunday. Uh, And initially, there's been some criticism that the Western media uh, has been giving too much credence to the Iranian regime here. The New York Times effectively reported as fact that they were getting rid of this morality police. A lot of activists are like, no, 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 this is what Iran does. They just want to create a divide here. This attorney general that we spoke of doesn't even oversee the morality police. So people are saying that this was very couched. And this is an effort, again, to try to create divides within the protesters, the demonstrations, many of whom at this point are just calling for a revolution in the country. They want the regime to go down. Uh, The level of violence that has been used against the protesters is extreme. And the fact that we're now more than three and a half months in and they're sort of dancing around, maybe we'll change the law. Uh, Activists want to make note of the fact that Iran tends to do this where they might announce something, but it's not certain. So that's just something to keep note of as we watch these headlines unfold this week. From Axios, an alleged attack on multiple electrical substations left 60 percent of North Carolina's Moore County without power over the weekend in what local and state authorities are investigating as a criminal act. About 45,000 homes and businesses in Moore County, which is located about 70 miles southwest of Raleigh, were plunged into darkness starting Saturday night. Moore County residents were under a curfew Sunday night and for the foreseeable future. At a press conference Sunday, the sheriff, Ron Field said that the substations had been shot at by gunfire in a targeted attack and that his office was working with the FBI and State Bureau of Investigation to find out the cause of the attack. Yeah, Jill, it could take days to repair. The county has declared a state of emergency. The big question down there is, was this linked 
to a drag show that was taking place in downtown Southern Pines on Saturday night. It had attracted a significant amount of protesters, police presence, attention. The show actually ended because of the power outage. So the Moore County Sheriff right now, he says his office was looking into a possible connection that people may have shot at the uh, electrical station in connection to that drag show. But as of Sunday, had not been able to tie anything specifically there. One of the leading protesters against this drag show, her name is Emily Rainey, claimed on social media that the sheriff's deputies questioned her about the outages on Sunday morning. About that outage, she said, quote, I told them that God works in mysterious ways and is responsible for the outage. I used the opportunity to tell them about the immoral drag show and the blasphemies screamed by its supporters. So we're going to watch in the coming days as they figure out who shot at the power stations uh, that put this county into darkness. What's notable here is the human impact, Jill. I heard from one of uh, the members of the Mo News community on my Instagram account whose 100-year-old father lives in Moore County and has had no heat and his cell phone ran out of battery power. So she's been having to try to find neighbors in Moore County to check on him. Moshe really is horrible. And I think it just once again points to how vulnerable our critical infrastructure is. And it'll be interesting to see if there's this connection here, because then that'll also speak to how groups, extreme groups online uh, are coming together over some of these uh, social issues and and using potentially violent measures against them. So uh, definitely worth watching what happened in Moore County, North Carolina this week. From CNN, some disappointing news for the U.S. soccer team. The United States men's national team was defeated 3-1 by the Netherlands and knocked out of the World Cup in the round of 16. Despite a spirited performance, it was the furthest the team has gotten in eight years after not even making the tournament back in 2018. President Biden expressed pride in a tweet following the defeat and made a nod to the next World Cup in 2026, which will be played in the U.S. as well as Canada and Mexico as North America officially plays host. Biden tweeted, fellas, you made us proud. We get up and keep going. Here's to a bright future and 2026 back here at home. Yeah, this is disappointing to watch on Saturday morning. Jill uh, definitely had high hopes when we uh, give up that second goal just before halftime. That was really rough. Uh, But they played strong. Uh, The U.S., by the way, was the second youngest team in the World Cup and actually the youngest team to make the round of 16. So they have a very bright future uh, and we'll all be looking ahead to the next four years. As far as who's left in the World Cup, obviously the Dutch beat us. So they made the quarterfinals. They are going to face Argentina. Meanwhile, England and France will also play one another next weekend. And the last four teams in the final eight will be decided today and tomorrow. I should tell everyone I'll be rooting for the underdog Moroccans, where my father is from. They play tomorrow against Spain. Okay, nice. I'll I'll root for them too, Moshe. Thanks, Jill. We'll take we'll take take all the support we can get. (laughs) All right, let's stay with sports here. The next speed read from ESPN. The top four teams have been chosen for the college football playoffs. Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and Ohio State are in contention for the national championship. Two games will take place on December 31st. Number four, Ohio State will face number one, Georgia, in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. And number two, Michigan is going to face number three, TCU, in the Verbo Fiesta Bowl. After not playing in a conference championship game, the Buckeyes, who are 11-1, and one, moved up one spot following USC's loss in the Pac-12 title game Friday to give the Big Ten Two playoff teams for the first time in the format's nine-year history. So, Jill, your Michigan team (laughs) has the potential to play your husband's Ohio State team 
once more. Oh, aware. <laughs> <laughs> this will be an exciting New Year's Eve, uh, I imagine, in your household and many households. So the two games, the Fiesta Bowl and Peach Bowl, will both be taking place on December 31st. And then the winner of each will then face off in the national championship on January 9th. That's where you could see the repeat battle of with, between Michigan and Ohio State. Uh, for what it's worth right now, the top two seeds, Georgia and Michigan, are the favorites in each of their games right now. That's uh, the last we checked on the betting lines in Vegas. And I should note that this is the second to last year for this four-team playoff format. So we'll have it this year. We'll have it next year. Then starting in 2024, they're going to be moving to a 12-team playoff format. Which should be really interesting. I, I could tell you my husband has like this pep in his step now um, just because his team – the Buckeyes are back in the playoffs. Um, he's super excited. And it should be interesting if there's a, a rematch, a Michigan-Ohio State rematch. Uh, I guess we'll take it. He did text me because I was out with my daughter. He's like, we've got New Year's plans. <laughs> like, right. okay. you, there's a 4 o'clock game and there's an 8 o'clock game, Jill. Yes. I don't, you know, it really... We'll, we'll see. We'll see what the feeling in the household is like at midnight. Um, I guess it'll save us a little money, though, because we won't have to get, you know, do people still do that? I don't even know. Do you get these expensive tickets to go out on, on New Year's? I once did. I don't know if people still do. I'll ask the people. We'll ask them on the Instagram, Jill. We'll see if the people still do that. And Mosh, we're going to end with this story here. It's from The Washington Post. A survey earlier this year found that 65 percent of about 9,800 adults said that they use their cell phones in the bathroom. Only 65% means, Jill, 35% of people are liars. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who was quoted in the piece said, look, there are two types of people in the world, people who check their phone in the bathroom and people who lie about checking their phone in the bathroom. <laughs> right. So, Mosh, I think that you are correct there. The rule of thumb, though, interestingly, is that it's okay. Just don't spend more than 10 minutes doing it. So here's why. First, I guess sitting for that long isn't that good for your tushy area. Also, um, and that's the official yes, terminology. Term. <laughs> and also, bathrooms could be pretty gross. And research shows that a toilet flush can aerosolize pathogens, spreading them to nearby surfaces like your phone. Uh, Mosh, this was one of the stories that basically lit up your Instagram page this weekend. Right. Yeah. Mo some people have much more interesting Saturday evenings. I have Saturday evenings where I was like, oh, this Washington Post story about we all use phones on the toilet, but don't spend more than 10 minutes uh, got me interested. So I posted a few things about it, uh, put out a poll. Uh, interestingly, while the poll in the piece found that 65% of people admitted to using their phones in the bathroom. I will tell you that the Mo News community, when I posted to them, 90% admitted to using their phone in the bathroom. So it might say a few things, including that I believe the Mo News community is much more honest than uh, the average survey taker. So major props to all of you. Though I did get a bunch of germaphobes who are like, listen, I'm being honest. I do not take my phone in the bathroom. It is gross in there. But I did have a bunch of people, Jill, and I'm wondering if this is you. Ask if it's young parents, because this is the only place I get solace for my children, <laughs> is when I take my phone to the bathroom and I try to prolong the time I have there away from all of them for as long as possible. I've, I've heard about people doing that. 
<laughs> okay, no admission <laughs> from your end. And and then the other thing was the number of women who complained about their husbands. Uh, I love this. I got this from like three women in my direct messages who said that they have delivered children in less time than their husbands use the bathroom for. You know what? There's a whole scene in This Is 40, that movie um, by Judd Apatow, mm-hmm. about this whole thing where um, Paul Rudd, I think, like plays on his iPad in the bathroom and his wife is like, I'm on to you, buddy. I know you're not really <laughs> using the bathroom. You're just using your iPad. I, I was actually, one guy messaged me over the weekend being like, dude, why are you breaking guy code, Mosh? Why you? And I was like, really? You don't think they know? You don't think they know that we spend a lot of time in the bathroom and it's like not for actually going to the bathroom? But I didn't realize the uh, the medical impact here. And when you're saying bad for your tissue area, they're talking about hemorrhoids and some other stuff. Anyway, you can read it in my Instagram account. Uh, (laughs) No, no, Mosh, go on. (laughs) (laughs) The medical impact of literally sitting too long in the toilet uh, is a thing, guys. So uh, definitely figure out another way to break away from the stresses of your life beyond just uh, sitting in the bathroom. Well, on that lovely note um, and the imagery that accompanies it, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. That is a wrap on today's episode. Just make sure to follow us, subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Yes, and I should note, Jill, today's December 5th, and I'm trying to make a point of checking out the On This Day in History on this day. And uh, today, happy 89th birthday to booze being legal again here in America on this day in 1933, December 5th. Utah, thank you, Utah, you put us over the top on ratifying the 21st Amendment. Keep in mind, we've only ratified the Constitution or amended the Constitution a few times. Two of those amendments, one was banning booze. The second, the 21st one was Uh, making booze legal again. So after our 13-year experiment, yes, 13 years with Prohibition, 1933, on this day, our friends in Utah ratify uh, the amendment, putting uh, the states over the top on making booze legal again. And Jill, 89 years later, we're thankful thankful to be able to have a drink once in a while. Oh, absolutely. Is this going to be a thing that we're doing now uh, on this day? Uh, (laughs) Did you add a section to the podcast without telling me? um, Which is cool. I just I'm wondering. uh, Listen, I think that uh, as as we can, you know, try to try to give people fun facts, especially on these Mondays. Maybe we'll do it a couple days a week. Maybe we'll do it on Mondays. You know, yes, I'm into it. We'll try to find some notable things. We'll try to kind of go out of left field with stuff. Um, Keep in mind, if you like this segment uh, or you like this podcast, you can review this podcast in the app store on whatever app you're listening to us on right now. We appreciate all of you who have reviewed reviewed the show. It actually helps us grow. So the more reviews, uh, the merrier, especially the good ones. So please, uh, if you could take a moment and do that, I'd be grateful for that. And if you don't follow me over on Instagram yet, you can follow me over there at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow. All right. Bye, everyone.